Turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 11, because this is the word of God with which we defeat the fiery darts of the evil one and all of his temptations to be lazy and disobedient and unbelieving. Romans 12, 9 to 11. Now, before we do this, let me divide you up into uh, maybe three parts here. This is part number one right here. If you're inside my arms right now, down below, you're one. And if you're inside my arms right now, you're number two. And the balcony, the whole balcony, is number three. Okay? Now, Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 13, says... Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask or require of you? And there are five answers. When I get to them, and I'm going to point to a group, and that group's going to give me the answer. One, two, three, four, and then everybody. Okay? Okay, Israel. What does the Lord your God require of you or ask of you but to... To, 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 and everybody to, it's all right if we have different versions going, (laughs) the Lord can sort that out and it's the murmur that counts. It's that wonderful hum of the engine of the Word of God in a church. It's easier next week. That was a hard one. Lists are hard, but here's, here's a clue. When you got a list, you got to learn, you got to find patterns in the list. Otherwise, you're done for. This brain is done for anyway. Phone numbers, impossible. Unless I can find meaning in the phone number. So the meaning, the pattern is fear is an internal thing leading to walking, which is an external thing, and loving, an internal thing, leading to serving, which is an external thing. So I see two pairs there, fear and walking and loving and serving. That's the way I can memorize four things in a list. And then the last one, obedience. Now, it's here in this text. I didn't choose this text because there's a link up, but I want you to see the link up. In serving the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. So let's read these three verses. Romans 12, 9 to 11. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging or flagging or lagging behind in diligence or zeal. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. So if it was required of us under Moses that we serve the Lord with all our heart and with all our soul, should we expect to find anything less in the new covenant where it says not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord that way, which is the same as with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, Lord, as we undertake to unfold these few verses And apply them to our hearts here in this room now for the next little while. I pray that the Holy Spirit would come. 
I ask in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit would come and be our teacher and be our transformer and our humbler. Make us vulnerable to the word of God. Make us shapeable right now, Father, by your spirit, shapeable under the impress of the word of God so that we are changed by it. More in conformity to Christ than when we walked into this room. In his great name I pray. Amen. Now the reason I chose this text is because I was reading an article by William Bennett. And in it, he used a word that I did not know. And I had to look it up in the dictionary. And that word triggered in my mind this sermon. William Bennett, I don't know if you know who that is. He was the secretary of uh, education under Ronald Reagan. And he wrote two books now that have made him very famous. The Book of Virtues, seen stacks of them in the bookstores, and The Moral Compass. He was writing an article in First Things this month, basically about the Supreme Court and about the what's being called these days the judicial usurpation of the democratic process. Meaning that the Supreme Court is making decisions, finding rights in the Constitution that the framers never dreamed were there, and cutting short and stopping political process so that through discussion, the people could decide what the moral bearings of this culture are going to be, rather than for nine people to decide and by law end discussion. That's what he's writing about. But he gets to a certain point moving toward abortion. And he says that's not the main problem in America. The court is not the main problem in America. And here's the sentences in which I found the word that I didn't know and had to look up that triggered this sermon. He said the problem is not simply with the court. The problem is also with the citizenry itself. It seems to me that this is the heart of the matter. A culture of acedia. I didn't know what that word meant. A culture of acedia, A-C-E-D-I-A, has taken deep root in the soil of the late 20th century America, which has led to acquiescence and passivity. Have we lost our capacity for justifiable outrage? Can we be roused to act against the spread of foul and wicked practices? End quote of William Bennett. So I looked up. Acedia. And there's a very short definition in the Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary. It says apathy, comma, boredom. So what he's saying is there is there has taken deep root in America here at the end of the 20th century, a culture of boredom. And apathy. Now, this is different from inactivity owing to fear. It's different from inactivity in one area because you're so passionate about another good area. That's not what acedia is. Acedia is a collective yawn over most everything. A collective boredom as a culture. Now, I want to go beyond William Bennett here and just give you my read on this before I take you to the text and show you why this text was triggered by this word. My sense is... That you can see this acedia, apathy, boredom in America by the incredible prevalence of 
sports and entertainment and video games and movies that explode with tension. I hardly go to any movies. It's just because there's, I'm so vulnerable to temptation of every kind. There's not a movie in a thousand I can handle. So I hardly ever darken. But when I watch television at somebody's house or when we borrow television to watch the NBA or whatever finals or maybe next Sunday the Super Bowl, I see these previews and you get blown, blown all over the place by the previews of these movies. And I said, what is that? Culturally, what's the meaning of these explosions? You didn't used to have explosions like that. They got these new devices. Everything's blowing up in movies, it seems like. Well, I think there's something cultural going on here about tension and danger and risk and close calls and stunning explosion and feats of daring. What's that? What's going on here? It's an attempt. This is my, my judgment. It's an attempt of a culture... To find some excitement and some adventure and some strong feeling in a workaday world that is just plain boring. We human beings, get this now, we human beings were made for adventure, for daring, for exploits, for risk, for courage, for nobility, for some high and holy and noble cause to invest our lives in. And most of us spend our day sitting in front of a monitor or shuffling papers. Or dusting a room. Or driving a vehicle. And we're bored. We're talking almost everybody is bored in America with their jobs. They don't have any adventure to them at all. So what do you do? You make it up. You do it artificially. You do it second hand. And you not only do it second hand, you do it second second hand. That is, you go to a game... Or you turn on a game, or you buy a game you can work with your hands. And that's a game. I mean, it's not even watching reality. It's watching make-believe reality. So that's not real. And this watching it is not real. Real is at the office. And it's boring. I think that's America. There's nothing exciting going on in most people's lives. They're bored stiff. They're not risking their life for anything. There's nothing high and big and noble and glorious and joyful that you can link arms and lay on your lives for. That's what we're made for. You were not made to be bored, nor to get your excitement from other people's artificial play. That's a sedia. And it's devastating in a culture. William Bennett is right, I think. A culture of Acedia. We look like we're having a good time. But it's all artificial. It's just games. It's nothing real. The games are not real. The watching it is not real. It's all artificial. And we wonder, why are our relationships, friends and family, so thin and weak and fragile? Why don't we have some deep relationships like you read about in biographies and novels and why don't we have relationships that are like camaraderie in a cause and the answer no cause you don't make deep relationships watching television with anybody believe me you don't make deep relationships going to movies you don't make deep relationships sitting arm by arm working joysticks you don't make relationships that way relationships are made when you link arms in a cause worthy of the human soul 
And you risk something and you take a chance and you suffer together and you meet each other in the hospital or somewhere and you say, we made it or we didn't make it. And I'll see you in heaven. There's something that happens in relationships when you're devoted to a cause worthy of your life. So I looked up Acedia and all this got started. Acedia, boredom, apathy. God's will for you this morning is that you not be bored, that you not be apathetic, that you be strong and fervent and boiling for something great. That's his will for you. And I'm going to try to show it to you now from the text. So let's look at it. I sat and I prayed over that article and I said, Lord, it's the sanctity of life Sunday. And I preached on washing 10 plus times at Bethlehem over the last... Ten plus years or so. And I could give them another strong argument for why it's a wicked thing. But I I felt like what I was supposed to do this morning is just take it where it is and just fan whatever flame of fire is in you. Because we're all bored. We're all apathetic. We're all yawning over this thing. Now, somebody's got to just fan the little flames that are going out out there. And, and Paul's going to fan them with verse 9 and verse 11. Here, this is the text that came to my mind. He says, abhor what is evil. See that in verse 9? Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Now, these are not your run-of-the-mill verbs. These are not little safe, domestic, don't like it. Or like good. Like good. Don't like abortion. Don't like evil. Like good. These are not your run-of-the-mill, soft, easy verbs. He's reaching for mega verbs here. Abhor. Apastugantes. It's a rare word. It's a violent word. Abhor what is evil. Look it in the face and say, are you evil? Yes, you're evil. I abhor you. I don't abhor people. I abhor evil. Or the positive side. Cling to good. Look good in the face and say, I love you. I cherish you. I cherish life. I cherish birth. I cherish children. I cherish suffering for the right. I cherish adoption. I cherish the good decisions people make. Oh, I love those things. They make me burn inside with joy. You know, verbs like these call our personalities into question. They do. Because a lot of you are sitting there right now saying, oh, Piper, you just... That's you. That's where you are. We are not that way. I'm not a passionate person, so back off. And then we justify our lukewarmness towards evil and towards good and say it's personality. Look, everybody's got different personality. Some are hot, some are cool. They're all over the map on personality. In Christ Jesus, you are united to God. Christianity is not a set of ideas alone. It is union by the power of the Holy Spirit supernaturally with the living God. It is a branch in a vine and into you is coming that which you are not. Therefore, you may not settle any issue by that's the way I am. Christianity is the union of the way you are with the way you are not. God. And the whole purpose of the Christian life is that we might be not conformed to this age or what we would be by genetic age functioning alone, but 
be transformed by the renewing power of the Spirit over your mind. So if you sit there and you're saying, who commanded to abhor. I haven't felt abhorrence toward evil in a long time. Commanded to cleave and love and cherish good. I haven't felt anything strong like that for a long time. Pray for God to work in your life. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Bible, the very living Word of God. And you have the fellowship. And you have eyes to see horror. We'll talk about horror in just a minute. And then pray that God would do it. Ten years I've been preaching on these things. I went back, took the Desiring God catalog that has every sermon I've ever preached in it since June of 1980. No, July 1980. They're all there, on paper. I've got to be held accountable for everything I've said for 16 years. And I, I just look to see year after year what I said on abortion, what I preached on. Trying to think, now what's new, what's fresh, what's needed this year on this Sanctity of Life Sunday? And I said, why don't you just rehearse for them a few reasons why it's a wicked thing. If it says, abhor what is evil, why is abortion evil? I'll give you seven reasons. These are seven sermons. Number one, it's evil because what is happening in the womb is a unique person-forming work of God, and therefore abortion is an assault on the creator rights of God to bring a human being into being as a person. It's an assault on God. That's why it's evil fundamentally. That was one of the first sermons I ever preached. It's not about moms. It's not about kids. It's about God. That's the first point in abortions. Number two, it's evil because the taking of a non-criminal life is the blessed privilege of God alone and not any man. Now, the reason I say blessed privilege, blessed privilege is what? I wonder where where you think I'm getting that from. What does he call it? Blessed. I get it from Job 121. Remember, ten children dead, killed by wind that makes a building fall on them. So God or not God. Who did that? Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed. There's the word. Blessed be the Lord. This is a blessed God who took my children. It's a blessed privilege. God owns you. You know that? You don't deserve one more second of breath. If, if you drop dead in your pew right now, God will have done you no injustice whatsoever. He owns your life. You have it on loan to use for his glory. He can take it back anytime he wants. He owes you not one second of life. No injustice is ever done to anybody who dies from God. Men commit injustices because we've got no right to take non-criminal life. But God has every right to take you or me or anybody else anytime he wants. And therefore, we may not infringe upon it. Number three, abortion is evil because babies torn apart in their mother's womb are created in the image of God, unique among all the creatures of the world. It is no accident, nor is it a small, insignificant thing that in Luke 1.15, 
The inspired writer says John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. You don't fill cells with the Holy Spirit. You fill persons with the Holy Spirit. Fourth, abortion is evil because God has revealed that his way in the world is to care for the weak and the humble. Everybody in this room who is saved got saved because God treated you that way. You were totally helpless like an unborn infant, as unable to breathe spiritual air as a baby on an umbilical cord surrounded by placental fluid. Totally. And he saved you. You were helpless and he saved you. That's the way he is. And how can we treat the helpless any other way than than that? Fifth. It is evil because abortion is a sign of unbelief in the promises of God, as though aborting this child were the only way I could create a livable future. Disbelieving in the God who says, is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for me? Can I not do this? You think I cannot handle this child and you and your other eight children or this spina bifida? Big article on Down syndrome in world. Read it. We have several in this church. What a beautiful article. Now get the thing pinpointed before people are born and you can just X that one. X that one. You need a good one. We pay for this in our culture. Number six, it is evil because those who do it The abortionists, they know what they're doing. They name it child killing and say it's the lesser of two evils. I've talked to them. I've taken them out to lunch. I've talked to the nurses and I've talked to the abortionists and they name it. They name it. We kill children, but it is the lesser of two evils. Therefore, it's evil because you know what you're doing. And seven, because it is essentially... And this is one of the most deeply rooted reasons in our culture why it's here. It is essentially a way of providing women with the same supposedly consequence-free life of unlicensed sex that men get. You see, in a mood, in a culture where sex is right, and there are no longer any divine, holy, God-given restraints, and you do what you feel like doing, and one has to pay and the other doesn't, that's an intolerable injustice to the one who has to pay, the woman. Therefore, you solve that problem with abortion. It's the only way. You talk, you get right deep down to the heart of the matter and says, it is not just, it is not right. Men can fool around all they want and they go scot-free. A woman fools around one minute, she's got this baby she's got to deal with for the rest of her life if you say what you say. You call that just? And therefore, abortion is an attack on the very way God has established the origin and the nurture of children. And I say, these men better be called to account. It is not a one-way street. Those are seven reasons why abortion is rooted in evil and an expression of evil. And I just think this morning we need to be Reminded of that and then called not 
to be a part of the culture of Ascedia. So I read on in William Bennett's article when he got to abortion. And I read on in Romans 12 and got to verse 11. And I saw these two coming together in a way. Before I get to verse 11, I want to, I want to ask you if you, if you're up. Now I assume all of you are up on the partial birth abortion and what happened in the Congress. The partial birth abortion ban was passed by both the Senate and the House of Representatives. A bill restraining and restricting that, except for the life of the mom. And our president on April 10 vetoed that ban, saying that there must also be a clause for the health of the mother. And we all know in the language of jurisprudence since Roe v. Wade and the subsequent decisions that health means anything the mother calls health. And therefore, the president said, in order for me to put my stamp on this, it has to be allowable for any woman who wants to get it. Now, Brenda Schaefer, in 1993, blew the whistle on this thing and brought it to our light and wrote it up in these words. She was a pro-choice nurse who was assigned to a clinic, stood beside a doctor, and this is what she wrote. I stood at the doctor's side and watched him perform a partial birth abortion on a woman who was six months pregnant. The baby's heartbeat was clearly visible on the ultrasound. The doctor delivered the baby's body and arms. Everything but his little head. Now, I've seen my children at that stage. Then the doctor opened the scissors. Oh, I skipped a sentence. The baby's body was moving. His little fingers were clasping together. He was kicking his feet. The doctor took a pair of scissors and inserted them into the back of the baby's head. The baby's arms jerked out in a flinch, a startle reaction like a baby's does a baby does when he thinks he's going to fall. Then the doctor opened the scissors up. He stuck the high-powered suction tube into the hole and sucked the baby's brains out. Now the baby was completely limp. I never went back to that clinic. But I still am haunted by the face of that little boy. It was the most perfect angelic face I have ever seen. Close quote. Now, this is what prompted William Bennett to write on. And the rest of the paragraph, the one I started earlier, completes like this. And I hope it hits you with the weight that it should. The Congress failure to override President Clinton's veto of the partial birth abortion legislation is illustrative of the culture of ascedia. When it comes to the subject of abortion, I believe that there are a limited number of hard-wrenching cases. But here is an easy one. The presidential sanctioning of a procedure that is, for all intents and purposes, infanticide. What was most striking to me was the lack of virtually any public response. Now, that's an overstatement, I think, on Bennett's part. You tend to make overstatements, I think, when you get passionate about these things. And the reason I know it's an overstatement is not only because of the newspaper articles, but you get on the web. Those of you who surf the web, try the morning, you can't do it in the evening anymore. You get on the web and type in your browser, partial birth abortion. You know how many home, home pages you're going to get? Hundreds. It, this did not land with a whimper. 
last sentence. Still, we cannot escape the fact that we had something of a national debate about infanticide, and infanticide prevailed because of a popular president's veto. That very little was heard from those Americans who did follow the debate. That the Republican presidential and vice presidential candidates and many congressional candidates said little or nothing about the issue during the 1996 campaign. And that Americans re-elected a president by a wide margin, the man who looked at infanticide and said yes to it. Close quote. That's the culture of ascedia. Now, I get to verse 11 in this text. And I believe there's a message, and I'm almost done here, and we'll close with this brief exhortation. There's a message God wants you to hear here about the culture of acedia and the encroachments in John Piper's heart. I live four blocks from this place. Midwest Health Center for Women, Meadowbrook, you said a third. Over Hennepin County and the teaching hospital. I live four blocks from where more than half the abortions in Minnesota are done. And I can go weeks and not think about it. I am just as vulnerable as anybody. It says in verse 11, how are we to serve the Lord? Not lagging behind in diligence. I don't like that translation very much. It's not nearly as good as not flagging in zeal or not lagging in zeal earnestness. And the next phrase, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now, don't, don't tie up serving the Lord in church on Sunday, okay? Get rid of that religious stuff out of your head where serving the Lord is life. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all in the name of Jesus. Everything you do, changing diapers, cleaning a room, driving a car, nailing nails, doing wallboard, teaching a class, doing nursing, doing doctoring, doing lawyering. Whatever it is, it's serving God. Ephesians 6 not with eye service as men pleasers, but with singleness of heart, serving the Lord. He said that to slaves for everything they do to their masters. And so how much more us in our jobs. It's all service of the Lord. Our political life, our vocational life, our civic life is not for man's sake first, but for God's sake. And secondly, for man's sake, the first commandment, love the Lord your God. The second commandment, love your neighbor. It's all service of the Lord. And now, look at verse 11. How is it to be done? And there are two ways. One is negative and one is positive. The negative is don't be lazy in earnestness. The RSV says never flag in zeal. The NIV says never be lacking in zeal. Now, that's a rebuke to my passivity and yours. Laziness, lethargy, apathy, boredom. Giving up to a culture of ascedia. And so the word of God first on this particular phrase this morning, the word of God to all of us is don't be like that. Don't be a people who give in to ascedia. Don't be a people who give in to zeallessness in your life. Who get up, brush your teeth. Eat breakfast, read the newspaper, switch on the radio, go to work, be bored, come home, watch a little TV to try to get excited, read a little book, maybe even the Bible for a minute, 
go to bed and repeat the same thing over and over and over. And life is just one colossal bore. It isn't supposed to be that way. We are to have zeal. And if you don't have zeal, you don't have anything in your faith. You don't have God in your eyes. You don't have a cause in your heart. And there is one revealed in Scripture. To be linked with God is an awesome thing. To be zealless in the presence of God is blindness. That's the only possible explanation. God is up to something in this world, folks. He's not sleeping. He's not sitting on his hand saying, Whoa, this is boring. Redemptive history is boring. I don't like my world. God is not bored, folks. He is full of energy. He is on the move. I got a phone call last night. No, I don't know when it came because it was on my email and I listened to it last night. From George Verwer. Now there is quintessential zeal. Verwer. And I, I tried to call him back. He said, call me back on my, on my cellular phones. I called him last night and just rang and rang. So I'll try again this afternoon. I just want to talk to him because I'll get all zealous again when I talk to George Verwer, because he is about 200,000 more missionaries this year. I mean, this decade. He's got a cause. Of course, it's impossible. Well, what else would you want to devote yourself to beside the impossible? If you can manage it, big deal. We want to devote ourselves to something only God can do. And there are great things in the cause of life and justice. Truth. Here's the second one, and then we'll be done. Be fervent in spirit when you serve the Lord. What does that word fervent mean to you? The Greek word is zeantes. That doesn't mean anything to you. But it means boil. Literally, boil. Boiling in the spirit. Boiling in the spirit. You are told to boil. So if you feel, oh, my oven setting is way low. Turn it up. Boil in the Spirit. Turn it up by the Spirit. Turn it up by prayer. Turn it up by the Word. Turn it up by reading. Come to that Sunday school class and you'll boil next Sunday morning. The, the Latin word for boil is fervens. Where we get the word fervent. So when it says, be fervent in the Spirit, it's an excellent translation of the Greek, provided you know that the background of fervent is boil. Boiling. In the spirit. That banner up there, those of you who are under the balcony there can't see, but it hung here for a year. That banner up there says, we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. That word passion is not merely trendy. I know it's trendy. Everybody's talking passion today. Every vision statement in the secular world talks about passion. Everybody's talking about passion. I got that word from Romans 12, 11. Boil. In the spirit, RSV, be aglow with the spirit. I can't think of a better word in my life or in this world right here now than passion for that. To lead a non-passionate life in the presence of Almighty God and His cause of life and truth is to be blind or maybe dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we draw this service to a close now, by surrendering our resistance to passion, by surrendering it, I pray that you'd come and deliver us, Lord, from addictions to play. There's a place for play and diversion and recreation. We all need a break. Otherwise, the spring gets so tight it will snap. I know that. 
But Lord God, I pray that the, the overwhelming addiction to sport and TV and movies and video games and malls and shopping and travel, desperately trying to fill up our empty lives with something that feels exciting and significant, would be broken. That you'd break it and all that energy would go into something worthwhile. And to that end, Lord, even in song now, we just want to quietly surrender our resistance and surrender whatever obstacles there are to us engaging at that level for the cause of truth.